This is Chapter 15 of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Volume 1, Book 2, Chapter 15. My Exquisite Poem Goes to Smash. We of the personal staff were in fairyland now during the few days that we waited for the return of the army. We went into society. To our two knights this was not a novelty, but to us young villagers it was a new and wonderful life. Any position of any sort near the person of the maid of Vaucouleurs conferred high distinction upon the holder, and caused his society to be courted. And so the Dark brothers, and Noel, and the paladin, humble peasants at home, were gentlemen here, personages of weight and influence. It was fine to see how soon their country diffidences and awkwardnesses melted away under this pleasant sun of deference, and disappeared, and how lightly and easily they took to their new atmosphere. The paladin was as happy as it was possible for any one in this earth to be. His tongue went all the time, and daily he got new delight out of hearing himself talk. He began to enlarge his ancestry and spread it out all around, and ennoble it right and left and it was not long until it consisted almost entirely of dukes. He worked up his old battles and tricked them out with fresh splendors, also with new terrors, for he added artillery now. We had seen cannon for the first time at Blois, a few pieces. Here there was plenty of it, and now and then we had the impressive spectacle of a huge English Bastille hidden from sight in a mountain of smoke from its own guns, with lances of red flame darting through it, and this grand picture, along with the quaking thunders pounding away in the heart of it, inflamed the paladin's imagination and enabled him to dress out those ambuscade skirmishes of ours, with a sublimity which made it impossible for any to recognize them at all, except people who had not been there. You may suspect that there was a special inspiration for these great efforts of the paladins, and there was. It was the daughter of the house, Catherine Boucher, who was eighteen and gentle and lovely in her ways, and very beautiful. I think she might have been as beautiful as Joan herself, if she had had Joan's eyes. But that could never be. There was never but that one pair. There will never be another. Joan's eyes were deep and rich and wonderful beyond anything merely earthly. They spoke all the languages. They had no need of words. They produced all effects, and just by a glance, just a single glance, a glance that could convict a liar of his lie and make him confess it, that could bring down a proud man's pride and make him humble, that could put courage into a coward and strike dead the courage of the bravest, that could appease resentments and real hatreds, that could make the doubter believe and the hopeless hope again, that could purify the impure mind, that could persuade—ah, there it is, persuasion, that is the word— what or who is it that it couldn't persuade? The maniac of Domremy, the fairy banishing priest, the reverend tribunal of Toul, the doubting and superstitious Laxart, the obstinate veteran of Vaucouleurs, the characterless heir of France, the sages and scholars of the Parliament and University of Poitiers, the darling of Satan, Laïre, the masterless bastard of Orléans, accustomed to acknowledge no way as right and rational but his own. These were the trophies of that great gift that made her the wonder and mystery that she was. We mingled companionably with the great folk who flocked to the big house to make Joan's acquaintance, and they made much of us, and we lived in the clouds, so to speak. 
but what we preferred even to this happiness was the quieter occasions when the formal guests were gone and the family and a few dozen of its familiar friends were gathered together for a social good time it was then that we did our best we five youngsters with such fascinations as we had and the chief object of them was catherine none of us had ever been in love before and now we had the misfortune to all fall in love with the same person at the same time which was the first moment we saw her she was a merry heart and full of life and i still remember tenderly those few evenings that i was permitted to have my share of her dear society and of comradeship with that little company of charming people the paladin made us all jealous the first night for when he got fairly started on those battles of his he had everything to himself and there was no use in anybody else's trying to get any attention those people had been living in the midst of real war for seven months and to hear this windy giant lay out his imaginary campaigns and fairly swim in blood and spatter it all around entertained them to the verge of the grave catherine was like to die for pure enjoyment she didn't laugh loud we of course wished she would but kept in the shelter of a fan and shook until there was danger that she would unhitch her ribs from her spine then when the paladin had got done with the battle and we began to feel thankful and hope for a change she would speak up in a way that was so sweet and persuasive that it rankled in me and ask him about some detail or other in the early part of his battle which she said had greatly interested her and would he be so good as to describe that part again and with a little more particularity which of course precipitated the whole battle on us again with a hundred lies added that had been overlooked before i do not know how to make you realize the pain i suffered i had never been jealous before and it seemed intolerable that this creature should have this good fortune which he was so ill entitled to and i have to sit and see myself neglected when i was so longing for the least little attention out of the thousand that this beloved girl was lavishing on him i was near her and tried two or three times to get started on some of the things that i had done in those battles and i felt ashamed of myself too for stooping to such a business but she cared for nothing but his battles and could not be got to listen and presently when one of my attempts caused her to lose some precious rag or other of his mendacities and she asked him to repeat thus bringing on a new engagement of course and increasing the havoc and carnage tenfold i felt so humiliated by this pitiful miscarriage of mine that i gave up and tried no more the others were as outraged by the paladin's selfish conduct as i was and by his grand luck too of course perhaps indeed that was the main hurt we talked our trouble over together which was natural for rivals become brothers when a common affliction assails them and a common enemy bears off the victory each of us could do things that would please and get notice if it were not for this person who occupied all the time and gave others no chance i had made a poem taking a whole night to it a poem in which i most happily and delicately celebrated that sweet girl's charms without mentioning her name but any one could see who was meant for the bare title the rose of orleans would reveal that as it seemed to me it pictured this pure and dainty white rose as growing up out of the rude soil of war and looking abroad out of its tender eyes upon the horrid machinery of death and then note this conceit it blushes for the sinful nature of man and turns red in a single night becomes a red rose you see a rose that was white before 
The idea was my own and quite new. Then it sent its sweet perfume out over the embattled city, and when the beleaguering forces smelt it, they laid down their arms and wept. This was also my own idea, and new. That closed that part of the poem. Then I put her into the similitude of the firmament, not the whole of it, but only part. That is to say, she was the moon, and all the constellations were following her about, their hearts in flames for love of her. But she would not halt, she would not listen, for twas thought she loved another. Twas thought she loved a poor unworthy suppliant who was upon the earth, facing danger, death, and possible mutilation in the bloody field, waging relentless war against a heartless foe to save her from an all-too-early grave, and her city from destruction. And when the sad pursuing constellations came to know and realize the bitter sorrow that was come upon them, note this idea, their hearts broke and their tears gushed forth, filling the vault of heaven with a fiery splendor, for those tears were falling stars. It was a rash idea, but beautiful, beautiful and pathetic, wonderfully pathetic the way I had it, with the rhyme and all to help. At the end of each verse there was a two-line refrain pitying the poor earthly lover separated so far, and perhaps forever, from her he loved so well, and growing always paler and weaker and thinner in his agony as he neared the cruel grave, the most touching thing. Even the boys themselves could hardly keep back their tears, the way Noel said those lines. There were eight four-line stanzas in the first end of the poem, the end about the rose, the horticultural end, as you may say, if that is not too large a name for such a little poem, and eight in the astronomical end, sixteen stanzas altogether, and I could have made it a hundred and fifty if I had wanted to, I was so inspired and so all swelled up with beautiful thoughts and fancies but that would have been too many to sing or recite before a company that way, whereas sixteen was just right, and could be done over again if desired. The boys were amazed that I could make such a poem as that out of my own head, and so was I, of course, it being as much a surprise to me as it could be to anybody, for I did not know that it was in me. If any had asked me a single day before if it was in me, I should have told them frankly no, it was not. That is the way with us. We may go on half of our life not knowing such a thing is in us, when in reality it was there all the time, and all we needed was something to turn up that would call for it. Indeed, it was always so with our family. My grandfather had a cancer, and they never knew what was the matter with him till he died, and he didn't know himself. It is wonderful how gifts and diseases can be concealed in that way. All that was necessary in my case was for this lovely and inspiring girl to cross my path, and out came the poem, and no more trouble to me to word it and rhyme it and perfect it than it is to stone a dog. No, I should have said it was not in me, but it was. The boys couldn't say enough about it. They were so charmed and astonished. The thing that pleased them the most was the way it would do the paladin's business for him. They forgot everything in their anxiety to get him shelved and silenced. Noel Regusson was clear beside himself with admiration of the poem, and wished he could do such a thing, but it was out of his line, and he couldn't, of course. He had it by heart in half an hour, and there was never anything so pathetic and beautiful as the way he recited it. For that was just his gift, that, and mimicry. He could recite anything better than anybody in the world and he could take off Lahir to the very life, or anybody else, for that matter. 
Now I never could recite worth a farthing, and when I tried with this poem the boys wouldn't let me finish. They would have nobody but Noel. So then, as I wanted the poem to make the best possible impression on Catherine and the company, I told Noel he might do the reciting. Never was anybody so delighted. He could hardly believe that I was in earnest, but I was. I said that to have them know that I was the author of it would be enough for me. The boys were full of exultation, and Noel said, if he could just get one chance at those people it would be all he would ask. He would make them realize that there was something higher and finer than war-lies to be had here. But how to get the opportunity? That was the difficulty. We invented several schemes that promised fairly, and at last we hit upon one that was sure. That was, to let the paladin get a good start in a manufactured battle, and then send in a false call for him, and as soon as he was out of the room, have Noel take his place and finish the battle himself in the paladin's own style, imitated to a shade. That would get great applause, and win the house's favor, and put it in the right mood to hear the poem. The two triumphs together would finish the standard-bearer, modify him anyway, to a certainty, and give the rest of us a chance for the future. So the next night I kept out of the way until the paladin had got his start, and was sweeping down upon the enemy like a whirlwind at the head of his corps, then I stepped within the door in my official uniform and announced that a messenger from General Lair's quarters desired speech with the standard-bearer. He left the room, and Noel took his place, and said that the interruption was to be deplored, but that, fortunately, he was personally acquainted with the details of the battle himself, and, if permitted, would be glad to state them to the company. Then, without waiting for the permission, he turned himself into the paladin, a dwarfed paladin, of course, with manner, tones, gestures, attitudes, everything exact, and went right on with the battle, and it would be impossible to imagine a more perfectly and minutely ridiculous imitation than he furnished to those shrieking people. They went into spasms, convulsions, frenzies of laughter, and the tears flowed down their cheeks in rivulets. The more they laughed, the more inspired Noel grew with his theme, and the greater marvels he worked, till really the laughter was not properly laughing any more, but screaming. Blessedest feature of all, Catherine Boucher was dying with ecstasies, and presently there was little left of her but gasps and suffocations. Victory? It was a perfect Agincourt. The paladin was gone only a couple of minutes. He found out at once that a trick had been played on him, so he came back. When he approached the door he heard Noel ranting in there and recognized the state of the case. So he remained near the door but out of sight and heard the performance through to the end. The applause Noel got when he finished was wonderful, and they kept it up and kept it up, clapping their hands like mad, and shouting to him to do it over again. But Noel was clever. He knew the very best background for a poem of deep and refined sentiment and pathetic melancholy was one where great and satisfying merriment had prepared the spirit for the powerful contrast. So he paused until all was quiet. Then his face grew grave and assumed an impressive aspect, and at once all faces sobered in sympathy and took on a look of wondering and expectant interest. Now he began in a low but distinct voice the opening verses of The Rose. As he breathed the rhythmic measures forth, and one gracious line after another fell upon those enchanted ears in that deep hush, one could catch, on every hand, half-audible ejaculations of, How lovely! How beautiful! How exquisite! 
By this time the paladin, who had gone away for a moment with the opening of the poem, was back again, and had stepped within the door. He stood there now, resting his great frame against the wall, and gazing toward the reciter like one entranced. When Noel got to the second part, and that heart-breaking refrain began to melt and move all listeners, the paladin began to wipe away tears with the back of first one hand and then the other. The next time the refrain was repeated he got to snuffling and sort of half-sobbing, and went to wiping his eyes with the sleeves of his doublet. He was so conspicuous that he embarrassed Noel a little, and also had an ill effect upon the audience. With the next repetition he broke quite down and began to cry like a calf, which ruined all the effect, and started many to the audience to laughing. Then he went on from bad to worse, until I never saw such a spectacle, for he fetched out a towel from under his doublet, and began to swab his eyes with it and let go the most infernal bellowings mixed up with sobbings and groanings and retchings and barkings and coughings and snortings and screamings and howlings and he twisted himself about on his heels and squirmed this way and that, still pouring out that brutal clamor and flourishing his towel in the air and swabbing again and wringing it out. Here you couldn't hear yourself think. Noel was wholly drowned out and silenced, and those people were laughing the very lungs out of themselves. It was the most degrading sight that ever was. Now I heard the clankety-clank that plate armor makes when the man that is in it is running. And then, alongside my head, there was burst out the most inhuman explosion of laughter that ever rent the drum of a person's ear, and I looked, and it was Lair, and he stood there with his gauntlets on his hips, and his head tilted back, and his jaws spread to that degree to let out his hurricanes and his thunders, that it amounted to indecent exposure, for you could see everything that was in him. Only one thing more and worse could happen, and it happened. At the other door I saw the flurry and bustle and bowings and scrapings of officials and flunkies, which means that some great personage is coming. Then Joan of Arc stepped in, and the house rose. Yes, and tried to shut its indecorous mouth and make itself grave and proper. But when it saw the maid herself go to laughing, it thanked God for this mercy and the earthquake that followed. Such things make a life of bitterness, and I do not wish to dwell upon them, the effect of the poem was spoiled. End of chapter 15